0: Welcome to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. I'm Matt Dwyer. Everybody, who the hell else would it be? Am I right? If you if you're a first time listener, welcome. Thank you so much. If you've if you've been listening for a long time and you've this is a many episode that you've listened to. Hey man, what's going on? Good to see you again. Uh, if you've noticed, uh, some of you that my theme music is a little different today. That is because it is the music by my guest today, Ryan Samball and his his band, The Strange Boys. The song that you just heard is "The Girl Taught Me a Dance." And that's uh, one of my favorite songs by them. I am also in the outro of this uh, intro. The transition is going to be another Strange Boys song called Drugs, Iggy Drugs, which I actually got on a CD that I bought from Ryan In Before they had a label, it was like a CD they made themselves. I bought two two albums that you can't get out there in the world uh, from the Strange Boys on the streaming platforms. Or record, I guess. I don't know. Maybe you can. But um, so they're coveted um, items that I have. I'm a huge fan of the Strange Boys. I learned about them uh, on uh, doing the FYF festival. We did a show together, and then I went and saw them play. We did a few years together of the FYF Fest, and I would see them every time they came to LA to play. I I just it was one of my favorite bands, and they also, you know, they started off with the sound that you hear on the. And these two songs, and they're one of those bands that grew, and I was always excited to see what they would do next. Ryan joins me. I, I was, quite honestly, I've been intimidated to ask him for years to do the show because I respected the band and so much. And, of course, there's, that, there's two reasons I was intimidated. One, they were very cool dudes, and I'm a dorky, I was a dorky, um, awkward stand-up comic. And so uh, they were always gracious when I was around them and cool dudes. But, um, you know, I'm an insecure weirdo, so I was intimidated. And also because they're such great artists and it's such great music that sometimes you're just like, oh, man, they don't want to hang out with a dork like me. But uh, finally I got over that. I messaged him on Instagram and said, you know, would you do the show? I said, fuck it. I'll just see what happens. And that's how I've gotten a lot of my guests on the show. I just say, fuck it. I'm going to write this guy or hunt down their email, or if I see him on the street, I'm just going to ask him. And if you're a fan, if you're listening because you like the Strange Boys or because uh, somehow Ryan told you to listen, uh, check out uh, some of my older episodes. I've talked to a lot of musicians over the years. Uh, Wayne Kramer from the MC5, David Yao from the Jesus Lizard, uh, Rodney Anonymous from the... Uh, dead milkman i couldn't think of it (laughs) one of my first favorite punk bands as a kid in high school and i couldn't think of the name you know i did a lot of drugs and drinking in my day so the brain is a little tattered and sometimes the memory isn't what it used to be anyway i want to thank ryan for doing this um podcast it's a really great interview He's very open and honest about uh, his rise in the in the ascent of the Strange Boys and his life afterwards and some of his struggles. And it was really uh, very great, honest. And it's something I actually uh, related to because I feel like we had similar sort of early successes and that can screw with your head a bit. So... Enough of me talking about the interview. How about we just get into this interview with Ryan Sambal? The first time I saw the Strange Boys, I don't know, do you recall, like it was the first FYF Fest and you guys did a show on uh, KXLU and that's the first time I saw you guys play. I was also on the show helping promote the festival and I turned to your manager at the time and said how the fuck old are these dudes because you and she wouldn't tell me Uh, but you guys started incredibly young right?
1: Yeah I think uh, we started playing practicing when I was 15 so Matt the original drummer and I started playing like 15 16 together and
0: then started playing battle the bands in high school. Did you have that? Um, did you have that '60s of a sound when you? Because uh, it, it was the the reference, like the music that you're sort of uh, influenced by, is was kind of mind blowing. Because I was, uh, were you listening to that that kind of stuff at uh, a very young age?
1: Um. Yeah, I think both I think um Matt Hammer and I and my older brother Philip, uh, we got really lucky. Um, we avoided like modern punk. Like, none of us would ever have had a pop punk phase. Um, and we also avoided um kind of like fads. Um Listen to anything really new besides maybe like I was listening to like Radiohead when I was in like playing baseball in eighth grade and like when I played that and first three White Stripes records for anybody that was like driving to baseball with me nobody really liked it Um, so and there was like I guess you can sum it up with I was 14 and I was in my mom's mini band and she had just kind of, you know, blockbuster music was a big deal then. So, uh, you know, we just get to go get CDs there. It just come out and she was still in the mini band. Right. So she grabbed the CDs I had just randomly one day and said, let me listen to what you're listening to. Cause I don't know what you're listening to. Right? Um, and I had two CDs on me, uh, live from the muddy banks, the my record. Um, uh, and Green Day's Dookie, right? And she listened to both of them, and she took away Dookie and said, this is stupid. <laughs> it changed, like, my whole trajectory, trajectory, because it was just like, if my mom's telling me this is stupid and this Nirvana, like, for whatever reason, she's like, this is real adult stuff and then this other records this is stupid this is stupid music and so she just took it away from me I never listened to it again
0: that's a pretty hip mom
1: yeah I think she was just it wasn't hip it, you know, it turned out to be like that but it, she wasn't taking it hip she was just really actually listening and I think she heard more of the influences of real music she recognized in Nirvana where in Green Day she didn't recognize really anything any sounds you know
0: is that the reason why you skipped, like, pop punk, or was there other elements that you, you, you avoided that?
1: Um, strokes and white stripes, really. Uh, like, the, vine, the vines, the strokes, the white stripes. Um, uh, I saw the Black Keys with my mom when I was, like, 15. There's like, 30 people at the room in Dallas. Um... Seeing those shows like White Stripes and Strokes at Radio City Music Hall in 2001, um, that made it to where anything like, like when I was listening to that stuff and my friend would be like, well, let's listen to Incubus. (laughs) I'd be like, no, (laughs) like that stuff sucks. All the girls in like in freshman and sophomore year high school were into that. They would listen to their boyfriends go into their garages and like play Incubus and stuff. And the closest thing that we had in common was like, I like John Prishtante and everybody else liked John Prishtante, but that's as far as it went. Like, if anybody was like, do you like Incubus? It was just a night and day. If you listened to Incubus and then watch, like Jack White or John I mean, Casablanca's on stage, you were like, oh, that's not cool. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> Incubus is not cool. I don't. I don't hear. So yeah, it was really. <laughs> I just I don't hear Any of those influences In your music Do Were there other things That You were starting to Uh Dig into Once you discovered Those guys
1: Yeah Because um We had this CDs, We had this record store In Dallas Called CD World And um We both Matt and I Got accepted there For like Different reasons Um I asked this employee there when I first got there, um, you know, can I check out? And I had um, the first ever vinyl I bought was a uh, I know you're fine, but how you doing? Um, well, it's either on Crypt or Sympathy. I'm not sure. Um, and Funhouse on CD. So when I went up to the counter, this guy Lee was like, how old are you? And I was like, you know, 16, 15 or 16. He's like, how do you know about the Gories and the Stooges? And I just said, Mojo Magazine. Because I had just started reading Mojo. Um, there's this guy I worked with at the movie theater in Dallas just was obsessed with Mojo Magazine. So it's like, you know, it's like an encyclopedia every time you get it. Um, so I just learned all these influences through Mojo Magazine. Um, through the artists I already liked. So it was like, we were listening to everything everyone else liked. We just didn't sound like everyone else, I guess. You know, like we went further back and we had, I think the way we sounded so early that way is because, you know, I was listening to The Kinks and The Fall at the same time. So that kind of makes punk there. It wasn't just listening to The Fall. Just listening to the Kinks, it was like I sounded the way I did early on because I was listening to like Dylan, Blonde on Blonde, the Kinks, early Kinks, Mark Bowen, and Mark Boland and Marky Smith. Of course, I gonna sound like a you know
0: weasel. <laughs> did when you started playing B- Battle of the Bands in high school, and everybody's trying to sound like Incubus, and you guys from I mean I have some early CDs from before. You've got a, we're on a label, and the sound is already pretty fully realized. Did, were people like, what the fuck are these guys doing? Did they get it, or, because high school sometimes, you know, can be close-minded. <laughs> were, they, were they just like, what is what is happening?
1: Well, we, were bands, but we would gain people every time, like, um... We didn't game very many people at high school because we were just kind of like, you know, we'd all just quit, quit baseball and started skateboarding and stuff. So we were, um, but we weren't really late. You know, we were just confusing. Uh, but then when we started playing around town, There's this place called the Galaxy Club. If you went there on a Monday night and brought your CD demo, would walk you stand in line at the bar and then they would put your cd right then in there in a stereo on the counter of the bar and play it and listen to it for like two or three songs like skipping through and then they'll put you on a certain battle of the band's day someday during the day and you would sell tickets to it and that's however many tickets you sold was when you got to go on. and we played a couple of those and lost pretty bad. And then we won one. And that was kind of the beginning. But it was like we would own people, certain people in every audience that would like us, but not everyone, you know, not even close. It was mostly like the bartender would like us, so we were allowed to go to that bar now. Um, or this one lady would be like, you know, we'd start buying weed from her because we saw the show. It was like, oh, this is so great. awesome. Um, but we did take it very seriously back then. You know, Dallas... A joke Every, you know they're all really serious shoegaze artists that you were not supposed to have
0: on the stage yeah I remember seeing uh, that, that. I, yeah I just remember seeing certain bands in that era who would be smiling or whatever and people would be like this is fucking bullshit I'm like what they're having fun <laughs> it's like it's what it should be yeah I mean,
1: we didn't know, we didn't know until we uh, met and heard The Black Lips. Because when Greg Enloe joined the band, he turned me on to The Oblivions and um, uh, Raining Sound and The Black Lips and King Kong too. too. So it was like, when we met Greg, he had all this music that was fun. And it was just night and day. Cause when I heard the first three Black Lips albums in Greg's car in Dallas when I was 18, it was just like, it was scary cause I felt stupid, but it was also freeing because I just knew like, oh, this is what you're supposed to do. You can hear these guys are having fun. And it was just the opposite of everything we learned in Dallas. But it took a couple of years to totally get it out of the system and probably Um.
0: I remember when you guys came and did the FYF fest it seemed like I don't know it seemed like Los Angeles strongly reacted to you guys because it seemed like your sort of ascent happened quickly in LA I remember one show I saw you guys played for fuck I can't think of his name uh the dude uh, it was uh uh, James uh, it was the dude from The Makeup uh the chain, his, been on his Yeah, but his Yeah, his chain gang Chain and the gang And from what I heard that They were supposed to headline But you guys got so popular And everyone was buying tickets To see you guys That they flipped the bill Which I was like Holy fuck That's crazy I don't know about that Oh, you know It was at It was at the Echo And uh, I was only going I'd seen his other bands A thousand times So I was like Oh, I just want to see the But that's I remember it was Unless I have it wrong But it was originally him headlining And then they flipped the bill And it was like Packed to the fucking gills For you guys But did you feel a reaction Did you feel a reaction When you started playing around LA That people were Or uh, other places That people were responding To what you were doing
1: Oh yeah Yeah for sure Oh yeah The whole First couple years Is that we had this advantage of being, we looked younger even than we were. So, since we took ourselves very seriously at you know, I was I was very proud uh, of being a writer and doing, you know, doing it, I think we just took people by surprise because they thought we were gonna play, we looked one part, in our faces I and mean, then we ended up playing more that reminded people of other things they liked um, so I think it just was the right time in LA and I think with Miko Miko going on and these guys kind of took us under their wing reason we got put on fucking uh, Fest and like Dean was like one of our biggest supporters and so was Keith Morris um, Circle Jerks Keith Morris um in the red crew that was you know, based in LA obviously, and um and there was, you know, Dean from Middle Age, Morris, you know, then later, you know, Tim Presley, when um, Dark um, Dark of My Love was going on. Um, because I think it was different than anybody was doing in um, LA. Because um, it was a little, it was fast. You know, it wasn't like we weren't really a slow. We were pretty, pretty fast, but we weren't punk. You know.
0: Yeah, it just like when I first heard you guys, I was just like, "Holy fuck!" It was, it had that one of those uh moments where you're like this is kind of what i've been looking for it was definitely something outside of what was going on and it was i was very electric and uh, not like electric guitar but like your energy was just like incredible and and i i turned it on to everybody who would fucking listen (laughs) because i was like and I just feel like it. Yeah, it's it started to grow, and you guys, you it grew pretty fast because you got onto in the red, right? And then did things really change after you got onto the label?
1: Um. Well, Larry Hardy gave us every, everyone seven thousand dollars to start, and that was just like fucking humongous. You know, it's like all of a sudden we're able to do exactly what we wanted to do without worrying about rent, um, So that changed it for sure. And then um, the whole process of making that first record, was um, it went through a bunch of starts and stops and different versions, and then finally the final version that came out. Um, and that's cool because Larry Hardy, after that, after the first record, Larry Hardy never has ever said no to me. Anything I wanted. I never asked him for stupid shit, but at the same time, because we did the first record with Jay Retire first, and that's the only way Larry would do it. He would say, okay, you go record with Jay, and then I'll release that album. And it didn't go well. And so when Larry heard the versions, he was like, you know, just mediocre about it. And I said, just. Larry, please. because Jay was at the height of saying we about to be right so he was just not paying attention he didn't care he was buying shoes online when we were playing um, so I just begged him I said will you let me try for free to go do it in Den with my buddy Orville in his garage it won't cost you anything um, he said yeah sure and we he heard that version he was like oh it's just way better way better and he's never not He's never said no to me since then, which is just you know he's the coolest guy in the world. It's
0: it's rare that there's uh, labels and pe- people involved in labels that are that supportive.
1: Oh, I always sum up Larry this way. I mean, I will sum him up. Explain, I guess, is it? The first big commercial we got for uh, "Be Brave," he made a lot of money, um, and he around with that money and bought like a $20,000 home listening system you know like you bought a record player (laughs) so it's like the guy that's like paying for your records takes the money you made him from like a weird commercial a once in a lifetime kind of like here you go and just turns around and buys a better record player it's like that's the guy you want to make records for (laughs) Yep. Um, well, I mean, this is interesting because this is where I begin to make the mistakes um, that later would cause, cause me trouble um, because I had an intense fear of repeating myself back then. So I didn't even like to play a show unless we were playing a lot of different songs or at least one different new song. Like I just had this thing in my head that anybody who saw us and saw us twice, if we did the same show, like so many other people we knew that played the same show for like four years, you know? um, I was so afraid to do that. It had to be every single show would be different um, somehow. And that ended up really hurting us. because a lot of my contemporaries that were behind us in um, notoriety, I guess, or like popularity, they're now, you know, living in their houses they bought from their music, and are still professional musicians because they played the same thing night after night. Because that's what you have to do. Um, we were this weird ground where we weren't an experimental band or an avant-garde improvisational band, you know, which that would probably be closer to what I was trying to achieve, but I'm not that good of a musician. So I just had to write more songs, every song. As soon as the song's written, we start playing it. After a month, I want to have a new song to play. Um, So I just started writing really fast, but it ended up hurting us because we always, from then on, were too far ahead. And I refused to play the old stuff in the same way and so, you know, that's why I'm a dishwasher. <laughs> <laughs> do you... Uh... I mean, I also have horrible spending habits and, um, you know, live a life a certain way, but more or less, that's the reason why all my friends
0: live in houses and I live in my apartment that my little brother paid for. Do you uh, regret that, or do you embrace what you did? Um... I mean, it depends on when you ask
1: me. If you ask me when I'm, like, two hours into a dish shift, (laughs) I'll say, yeah, I I regret it. One of my buddies comes on, you know, um, Pandora, and I'm like, oh, you know, shit, I probably could have just played those songs maybe another year or two. Um, But other times, I... I'll put it this way. I accept... On my better days, I accept my role in the last 10 years of, you know, um, slightly below mainstream music because without sounding, um, egotistical, I could say because I know it for a fact that over the last nine years, 10 years, um, Songs I've written, performances I've done, or times I've met people at certain shows uh, has influenced other people's work. Um, So I think there's people that are meant, I don't mean destiny, but are are primed and meant for big time. um, Where they really give people what they want, the masses what they want. And then there's people like me who are bound to be poor their whole life, more or less until the documentary comes out in like 20 years and when I'm dead and then i I get some money and everyone everyone talks and then he says you know you're good at bad things whatever but it's all like half people I don't even talk to and uh, because my role as far as I see it in the last decade has just been uh, an influencer that's it because I'm, I'm just a songwriter so it's like there's people that I know, friends of mine, that you would recognize and are on, that you listen to, that at certain times in their careers um, took something from me, not in a stealing way, but in the way I took it from someone else, like a work ethic kind of thing, or you know, have you ever started trying to write a song like this, or this is how I write a song, or this is how I write lyrics, and maybe you know, all these people at different times, I was there at the right time in their career to be a lesson of how to do it or how not to do it. And I think all of music is just, in any industry, music and art especially, is just peppered with people like me who are not household names and never will be. But, people like me influence household names all the time. You know?
0: Yeah, believe me, I can relate to that more than you (laughs) uh, realize. I mean, I've, I worked at uh, a notable theater in Chicago And a lot of my friends Went on to uh, Fucking multi-millionaires Winning awards And I I'm, I would be working in a bar That somebody was spitting on me Because it was Or throwing candles at me Because it, it was a shithole near Skid Row <laughs> yeah. uh, So And there would be times uh, Where I was just like What the fuck did I do? Um, but I didn't do anything. I just followed what I felt, you know, I followed my gut, which and I didn't, it wasn't a calcul i never had a calculating business mind or like I just was doing what I wanted to do. And, uh, but to, then uh, to, to accept that down, you know, like you said, get perspective and, ex- you know, finally I've accepted my role and I'm just like, okay, I, and I did s- similarly, but, um, to but it's not about me <laughs> uh i'm curious though when uh, uh what when the when the band broke up and you uh what you thought about like what do I do now creatively now that this this is is over um what did i think about that like yeah what was your what what was your thought about what you would do next creatively well, I mean, before the Strange Boys,
1: before even our last tour, I recorded that solo record, uh, Now Ritual, um, in San Francisco, because I was living in San Francisco in 2011-2012, and then 2012, some of the Strange Boys broke up. So, that was a... <laughs> you know, at that time, Ty, John Dwyer, um, Michael Clonan, um, they were all still in San Francisco, probably. Um, uh, and uh, I just happened to fall right in that, you know, that crew there. And so when I was living there um, for that like, about nine or 10 months, I wrote a bunch. It was the first stuff I wrote since the music stuff. And um, then I recorded an album with uh, Eric Bauer in his basement studio down in Chinatown. And that's what the now ritual is is I just put uh, my band camp. But, um, I wasn't worried about that because I just was around, you know, like there was a time I was at Eric Bauer's studio recording and then Ty had a session right after me thing. So, Ty works with Eric Bowers so well. They've done so much stuff together. It's like they can, you know, telepathically do so much, right? So I'm tired, so instead of going home and taking the bar back home, I just uh, lay down on the couch, right? And I fall asleep to Ty talking to Eric about what he wants to do today. And then I wake up to a finished song that's on twins. So I slept less than an hour, and Ty had played every drums, guitar, vocals, bass on a song and finished it that's on Twins You know, arguably one of his bigger records and they're like important as it came out at a certain time right um that kind of stuff I was just privy to um and same thing with the beginnings of White Fence you know um with Ty going the way he was going, John going the way he was going, and Tim Preston going the way he was, he was going. So I, I didn't have to do much. I just had to do my own little thing and hang around and watch everybody and have fun with everybody else. Um, yeah, the group of friends we had in San Francisco was just, or I was allowed to be a part of, was just so creative and so cool and great. And all those people are doing cool stuff now. I mean, all of them, every single one of them. So. I think it was easy for me, to that transition, because I was around probably the most creative people I've ever been around at a time when I had money um, towards the end, like the end of 2012, beginning of 2013. And I didn't, I wasn't worried. Um, But what I didn't realize is that everyone was putting in this a lot of work prepare for years worth of touring and I was not doing that and that's what makes you
0: uh, a career usually Were you just over with touring? Um, Not
1: traveling but you know it was very liberating for me to be able to go from town to town without worrying about four three or four or five other people what they wanted like the first time I went somewhere to play a show by myself, or the first time I traveled places by myself and I realized I could just uh, you know, take a shit whenever I wanted to. <laughs> I, didn't have to ask, I didn't have to ask anybody, like, hey, do you also have to take a shit? Do you think we can stop here? I'll take a shit. Like, uh, oh, you don't want to take a shit right now? Well, when do you want to take a shit? So I'll take one with you. It's like, I didn't have to do any of that stuff. And when you're traveling like that and you're just sitting on the grass somewhere and you're like, you know, I don't have to go anywhere right now. But if you're with 400 other people, they're like, one's like, oh, I'm going to go get a kebab. I was like, well, I want to go talk to this girl that I just met last night. I'm going hang out. And the person's like, I want to go sleep. This sucks. I, like, I want to go score drugs. It's like, I don't have to worry about anybody else. It was amazing. Um, so it wasn't really the touring. Um Just people That's it People I loved But I didn't want to be around
0: Yeah And you're working on Some new stuff now Right? I saw you you posted A a new song on Bandcamp Are you working towards A new album Or are you just posting Songs as they pop up? No I got really lucky A buddy who
1: wanted Who's here in Austin I didn't really know Until the last year uh, asked if I wanted to do a record. So I pull, I wrote all these songs in the last like six months, right? Um, and they're pretty different, but very similar to other things I've done in some ways, but really different in um, style. Um, I'm playing with this loop pedal now. So um, I can create these beats, like a Johnny Cash like chug on the guitar strings that I loop, and then it sounds like drums. So I've been able to play songs that would have been solo acoustic songs, you know, a year ago, but now they're more dancier electric songs, because they a beat. Um, so he said, anyways, I, he wants to record this stuff. So I said, okay, and then the virus hit, and it got postponed for two weeks, right? He's got a kid and a life. It's zero risk if I don't show up, but it only goes up when I do, right? So... Everyone's isolating, and then he comes up with this idea to give me, let me borrow his quarter-inch machine, and he'll come over and set up the mics and the cables and get it all mixed and EQ the way sounds good, and then he'll just leave it all there. And that's what I've been doing every day now for a couple of days, and got about half of it done. Do the other half this week, and then take it into the studio again and see, like, you know, Bruce Springsteen's album, uh, Nebraska? Yeah. I was like, we're doing. This is our Nebraska. I'm just laying them down like demos, and if there's anything to add later, we just add it. You know?
0: Do you have any expectations of what will happen when it's done, or that's not in your head? Straight to the top. Straight to the top
1: of the charts.
0: Uh, I put the boat. I mean, you definitely have a, a following I mean, I've I've paid attention to everything you've done And I've I don't know, man I, th- I think you're one a uh, unique And original uh, Musician, songwriter For whatever that's worth Well, I'll give you my, my mom's number
1: You can find me there <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh,
1: just to, I didn't feel that way last year When I was sleeping on her couch For four months
0: Uh just to back up uh, to, to the Strange Boys I just want Because you talked about seeing um, I forget who you said You saw the Strokes Or somebody play at Radio City Music Hall Yeah, Strokes and White Stripes White Stripes And then you uh, played there with uh, uh, Spoon I was just wondering how yeah, spoon, dear, How that felt to uh, to play Radio oh. S- City Music Hall <laughs> Hey, everyone. I just want to take a break right here and say if you're enjoying the show, if you're a first-time listener or a long-time listener, and you want to become a part of the community and hear more, become a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash Dwyer. There's three different tiers. They each get you different access. The $5 tier gets you bonus episodes, commentary on every episode, pictures, videos, and blogs. So go to patreon.com slash Dwyer and subscribe. And if you don't feel like doing that but you want to help the show please go to iTunes, write a review, give it five stars, and I'll read it on the air or on the podcast. There's really no air. And you can also subscribe. That helps me out greatly. The more subscriptions I get, it bumps me up those old podcasting charts. And if you want some merch or whatever, go to matdwire.com That's a jumping off point for everything. Patreon, merchandise, social media. Follow me on social media. And thank you very much for listening to the show. That also means a lot. Now, back to the interview.
1: The, the Radio City Music Hall thing, uh, you just, you're summing up Strange Boys' career right now. Uh, that instance really describes what being in a band was actually like. Um, my father grew up going to see the Rockheads with his parents. Uh, he was growing up in the Bronx. My mother was born in Jersey and remembered seeing the Rockets and wanting to be a Rocket when she was younger. So both of them flew out to New York to see us play there. Um, we were not playing very good sets, but they weren't that bad at the time at the tour, right? And Deer Hunter and Spoon were like, killing it every night. So we get to raise see these calls. So cool. Union stuff, you know. You can't touch your amp once it like goes from the band inside. You know that kind of stuff. Um, do the sound check, hang out. You know, even the folks come back, play the show, and the show goes really mediocre. I mean, really mediocre. Um, as we're walking up stage, the stage manager says, um, "Are you Philip Sample?" And I said, no, I'm Ryan Sample. He goes, uh, is that your white van outside? And I said, yeah, that's a toy van. And he goes, uh, it's, they towed it. And I was like, the cops? And they're like, yeah, um, they towed it. And uh, we go outside, there's Spoon's like huge van, right? And there's Deer Hunter's like 12-seater van. And there was our really six-seater van was right behind it, Lou, Lou McVean, van, And the cone's just slightly skewed and it's gone. So we're like, oh man! So we have to end up getting it out of um, the pound of the lock pound, <laughs> uh, and, uh, in pounds, um, and in in the Bronx the next day, and that kind of describes the way that what, what would always happen to us. We'd have these great shows, have these good times, and really be pushing whatever we can push, you know, personally. And then when we get a chance to do something that would actually elevate us, uh, not only does it not elevate us and we don't do very well, but something bad would happen <laughs> that nobody else would know about, like your van getting towed, towed while you're stage when you see this call. Um, little things that like, we used to call ourselves the Stage Boys, S-T-A-N-G, because that was a running joke, we'd like pull into these towns often and see the name written as "stage," which is not a word, <laughs> but um, it would just sum up the way, things that would happen to us, whether we had bad, vibe or bad karma or whatever we were doing, but even from the distribution company that in the red used, um, we would get these rec- our boxes of records sent to us and on the side they said "Stage Boys every time on a sticker. Like, just when we thought we would be doing good and, like, getting away from stage shit, something, you know, we get a box of records. Um, it's just, like, that is just very funny. And I think there's just people, there's acts and people, all the stuff that that just happens to you at times in your life where you're just not going to make it. You can play great shows, but they don't mean anything if nothing happens afterwards. And you don't play great, you know?
0: Was there? I know you said that the Strange Boys would never reunite. And I saw. I saw you write about that. Um, but was there ever a time where that was a possibility, or did you have no desire to return? I mean, my brother Greg and I always joked about you know what's going to
1: happen when that festival comes around and offers us like crazy money to play one show or uh, you know a short. 10-year reunion kind of thing that people do all the time. But we weren't popular enough to really do that Um, right off the bat. But it was always said with a joke and then we wouldn't really do it. Um, I also didn't want to ask my brother or Greg to go back to that life again. So I didn't really leave it very much, but they definitely did. Uh, Greg came and got, you know, to play with a lot of bands in town and you know he's such a great guitar player and a musician that people wanted him in their band nobody wants be in their band <laughs> so it's like Greg had work, but then my brother he works for this non in Washington D.C. opening uh, grocery stores and food districts so it's like I don't give a suck that Philip ever sees the inside of a club again you know like He doesn't need to be asked To go do cocaine In some shitty Disgusting punk bath anymore Because he's helping people He's helping real people In real communities Get food to eat You know It's like He doesn't He shouldn't have to be Living in that world anymore So that's how I feel About the reunion And then With Greg dying It was just
0: kind of Sealed the deal Do you see That there's a legacy That's existing With the strange boys That, That there's It People still paying, oh, uh, uh, new people discovering the Strange Boys every. It was not as you know, art- I- art- articulated as well as I hoped it to be, but I think you get the gist. I
1: think, I don't think ever on a, on its own will Strange Boys ever be really any bigger than me are now. Um, but if I end up doing something down the road, that's big enough people naturally go back to what you did in the past. So I can see if anything if anything happens with strange stuff that's out of the old night um, or a little bit above average um, it would be because one of us did something later that drew attention to our past. You know? Yeah. People, like, yeah people always love that like, Man you hear this new guy Ryan just did this song it's like, He's not a big man It's like Have you heard this Strange Boys stuff You And there's the next guy that's in Dallas It's like nah man The band was called The Waves Before the Strange Boys Man you gotta have that CDR
0: Made in Ryan's bedroom That's the real shit uh, how, you, how do you feel about This new stuff that you're doing Do you feel it's are you liking what you're doing
1: Um, yeah I love it I never uh, I took a year I took almost two years off writing not by choice and then the last year was 2019 was the absolute hardest I've ever had uh, in my life. So you know, Greg died. Uh, lived in my mom's apartment for a long time. Washed dishes at my dad's restaurant. Um, and then went back to Austin. Tried to just pretty much destroy myself. Ended up getting put in rehab by my buddy and my brother. And then I get out of rehab, and my little brother says, you know, you gotta, you can't go anywhere else. You have to live alone for a while, you know, get your shit together, because you have it together now, but it's just starting, right? So I wrote all these songs in the last five months, four months, so it's, yeah, about six months, so all this stuff is so cool, because I'm saying things that I can back up for the rest of my life. Um, You know, a lot of weird stuff has been happening with these shows that I didn't expect. Um, People crying a lot. Uh, And not really even with the sad songs always. But I had probably six or seven people cry. These, like, uh, probably ten shows I've done so far. And also the other thing that's been happening is people ask me now, Play again a song I played earlier in the set. Now, this is the first time anybody's heard these songs. So the fact that this lady can hum or say a line to say, Can you play that one again? You don't want to go like that, uh, can you do that? Can you play that one again? You know, like when it says, There's the set starts to wind down, you know, it should stop or you know, I ask the crowd whatever you want, do you want to do. That's happened now like three times. So I can't help but, it's like I wrote the riff to be great in the parking lot of this place in England called the uh, Brutonell Social Club. Brutonell Social Club. And I said, please. But we played it, that sound check was played the riff, right? And then after the sound check, the sound engineer was whistling. And I was like, wow. That's weird. That's weird. That that riff is like less than an hour old, and this guy's whistling. It's got to be something to this, right? And there's been a couple of times that's happened in the past, is things like that. But with this new stuff, it's like another level of that. And I can only explain it to stage presence because I'm just not. I don't know. I don't think you see a lot of people that are as relaxed as me on stage these days because I just can't lose. um it's either good music or, or comedy. There's never anything other these days than one of those two, and both are good for people. Um, that and that, I think the songs are come from a very real, universal set of love, worry, and um, introspection. Introspection? What do you say? Introspection respecting your life, you know, really observing things. Those three things. I think the songs are so universal in that way. Um, not good or bad in any way, but just identifiable that these songs have a little different effect than um, other songs i have
0: For sure. That's great. Um, I want to thank you for your time and uh, where can people follow your band camp or your... St- uh, anything to f- To f- make To make sure they know When your music comes out
1: um, I don't have much In the way of Platforms But I do have yeah, you know the band camp, Which is just my name Bandcamp And then um, My Instagram Account uh, Forever Wet Paint It's kind of the only way um, We can be in the know And you know I try to keep them there As a uh, as light as possible.
0: Thank you very much, Ryan. I, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this.
1: Uh, man, thanks for asking.
0: Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Conversations with Matt Dwyer. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate, and review it on iTunes and subscribe to the show. Also, go to themattdwire.com and check out all things Matt Dwyer, My Patreon, merchandise, you name it, it's there. And thank you for supporting podcasting. I hope you come back and listen again. Thank you very much.